Hello, my name is Teresa Lubbers, and I have the privilege of serving as Indiana's Commissioner for Higher Education. Teresa Lubbers' resume reads like a manual on how to serve community. 13 years leading Indiana higher ed, 17 years serving as a state senator. And now, Lubbers is playing a key role in advocating policy strategy in the Midwest, including Indiana's growing role in defense. The testing of naval facilities, for example, doesn't have to happen on the coast, which we're really much more exposed. Actually, having that happen at Lake Michigan, where we're much less exposed, actually is an asset. Sagamore Institute President Teresa Lubbers, the epitome of Hoosier service. My guest on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. First of all, please don't expect me to be objective about this subject. Theresa Lubbers is one of the finest human beings I've ever known, and I've known her a long time. High praise from one Indiana public servant to another. Former governor and Purdue University president Mitch Daniels sharing his thoughts on Theresa Lubbers, a product of Warren Township in Indianapolis, who has made her mark in Indiana education, government, and now as a leader at Midwest think tank Sagamore Institute. And I am very pleased to welcome to the podcast this week, Teresa Lubbers, longtime state legislator, 13 years as commissioner for higher education in Indiana. And she's continuing her uh, public service now, serving as president of the Sagamore Institute, an Indianapolis-based uh, think tank. And Teresa, thanks uh, thanks for joining the podcast. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, you continued to be very busy. I mentioned the Sagamore Institute, founded uh, almost 20 years ago by uh, former Senator Dan Coates. Also, he was, of course, ambassador to Germany as well. Jay Hine as well. The two of them founded the Sagamore Institute, a think tank here in the Midwest. Give us the thumbnail uh, sketch, if you will, Teresa, of uh, what the Sagamore Institute is all about. Some may remember that 40 years ago, Hudson Institute moved from New York to to Indiana. And when they decided to move to DC 20 almost 20 years ago and to focus almost exclusively on international relations and a high degree of focus on uh, the Middle East, there were several people, including uh, Senator Coates and Jay, who had actually worked for Hudson, the Lilly Endowment, and others who really wanted to continue to have a heartland based think tank. We refer to ourselves as a think tank, but an action oriented think tank that really focuses on ideas, but taking those into practice with innovations and scaling those with investments as well. So next year will be our 20th anniversary. We're strategically focused on issues that matter to the Midwest, but that have impact and lessons that can be helpful, I think, to the nation at large. But clearly, a disproportionate amount of our effort is focused on Indiana and the Midwest. Well, you you talk about the Midwest because when you say think tank, I I think Many people automatically their mind goes to Washington, D.C. or New York. Uh, Was that part of the thinking in creating the Sagamore Institute, that there was a need, there was a niche, if you will, to have a think tank based in the Midwest, in the heartland, if you will? Absolutely. I think our thought is that it's important what happens in Washington, D.C. or even in state capitals, but that we would say that the preservation of the democracy really depends on an engaged and informed electorate and that what happens closer to home really matters as well. And that it that, you know, we aren't a flyover part of the country, that that we are 
instrumental to so many things that matter. Just as an example, we do a lot of work in the national security space, but what we've really focused on recently is the defense technology uh, corridor from Crane to Lake Michigan with all of our assets, Saab, Subaru, Purdue, you know, all of these things. So yes, it has a national impact, but it also is focused on Indiana as being an important player in that. I think when you look at, you know, the kinds of issues that we care about in the Midwest, they clearly people care about them in the country, but we have a slightly different take on those. And we think it's important to have the perspective of Hoosiers and Midwesterners be involved in that. Teresa, talk about some of those issues, because you mentioned defense, uh, national security, uh, you know, energy, some of these areas that, as you mentioned, Indiana does play, but can play, I think, an exponentially greater role in that whole process. How does Sagamore kind of participate in that discussion and, and what kind of outcomes do you hope to uh, to bring about? Well, we look at we really have three big areas that we think you can look at it from a negative way, which would be to say, what are the problems we're trying to solve? But then I would talk about it from a, a slightly different take, which is what is the hope we have for the future to do things better in a different way? Part of the reason why I made the decision to come to Sagamore, I wasn't really looking for another job, um, but I knew that I would only be interested in a purpose-driven organization, working with people who I agreed with in terms of their, their hopeful philosophy. I often repeat what Dan Coates says about Sagamore. We admire um, solutions, not problems. And so there are plenty of problems to go around. We all know. But at some point, you have to say that there are solutions to these. And so what are we going to look at? So as an example, we had a center for talent and opportunity here before I came, but we've really been standing this up, looking at everything from issues like minority entrepreneurship to education and workforce, the big project that we're working on now, Workforce 2040. What are the obstacles that stand in the way of people living their best lives? And yes, it's education and workforce, but it might also be mental health issues. So, for example, we staff the state's mental health roundtable. And that, so what are the obstacles that stand in the way and what are the, some solutions? That's one area. Another area is the one that you've already mentioned, I've mentioned, which is national security and keeping America safe. And what is Indiana's role in doing that? We have uh, several fellows that work in this space, including a gentleman by the name of Jerry Hendricks, who is a retired Navy captain, and he actually is doing great work right now on building this defense technology quarter. The third area that we look at, which is really part of our DNA, I think, it's, it's really what I would refer to as civil society. You know, what is it, it, some, it come, falls under a portfolio of citizenship, but it's, it's more than that. It's basically, how do we get people engaged in important issues and empower them to be involved in the preservation of this the kind of government that we have. So for example, yesterday, our conference on citizenship focused on the issue of the future of work. So rather than have these conferences focused on election reform, as important as that is, or all of those things, we pick a big issue and we say, how are we going to make sure people understand this issue? A couple of years ago, it was mental health and that birthed the state's mental health roundtable. Last year, it was on the issue of can Indiana help keep America safe? This year, it's on the future of work. So that's part of that portfolio. We also have, in, in addition to, to working in, in that space, we're doing a lot of work with civic education, uh, working with the Bar Foundation and other organizations. We just launched the Indiana Business Alliance for Civics, and we worked, it, it's not through us, but we partnered with them. Um, so a lot of, in, in this whole space of, of what we refer to as 
civil society. Mm-hmm. And we do lots of other things that people may not know about here. We, you know, we're involved in looking, helping someone who's running for president of Liberia. We work with Jalen Smith and do minority pitch contests. We have been doing consulting work in Tennessee with them. So, but I would say 80% of our work falls in those three pillars and disproportionately serves Hoosiers in Indiana. As you look at at potential outcomes and how your work can contribute to that, because I'm fascinated. I think it's 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 very interesting, this whole idea of a defense corridor. You, when you think of in Indiana, all of the assets that exist here that people know about that, but they probably don't think of them in terms of, of you know, playing a, a part in this bigger picture. What can that lead to? What can your work lead to in terms of outcomes that, you know, ultimately could be jobs and investment and right. all kinds of things? It's very much tied to the workforce, because if we're going to, if you look at all of the things that are changing and the economy generally and changing the military, changing our national security you know, you look at the benefits of, that come out of Crane or you look at what's happening. But Purdue is at the center, as you know, because you've interviewed people there before, but is at the center of so much that's happening in this area. If you look at security and what Jerry Hendricks would say is, you know, that the testing of naval facilities, for example, doesn't have to happen on the coast, which we're really much more exposed. Actually, having that happen at Lake Michigan, where we're le- much less exposed actually is an asset. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, and I think building this, we work, you know, very much in Indiana, but I think there is a Midwest part. It's Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, uh, Minnesota, Ohio. You know, we have these assets right here that actually can speak to this. And and so we're, we're talking about having in probably the middle of the year next year, a defense conference that actually will focus on many of those issues. So we're 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 doing yeah. a lot in this area. So look forward to continuing to keep you kind of informed of how we're building out that portfolio of work. One of our fellows is a gentleman by the name of Alan Dowd, and he's one of the most thoughtful writers on national security issues in the country. I mean, mm-hmm. he just uh, and he he writes a lot for a lot of different publications. We do a lot of work with American Enterprise Institute, so we partner with other organizations mm-hmm. where we find that we are aligned on many of these issues. So we're not ideological. We don't take positions on highly charged political issues. We're much more likely to say, what do we do about the state of affairs as we find them today? Yeah. What I thought was interesting too, as, as I did a little, little research uh, on Sagamore and, and, you know, talking about uh, your interest in tackling difficult issues with civility and a focus on solutions, not ideology, as you just mentioned, is that in, in this environment today, is that possible? I mean, it just seems like there's everything is so ideologically charged, all the issues and those types of things. Is it possible that you think you're making progress in that in that regard? You know, you, you, you can't boil the ocean and we have there are big issues out there. There's no doubt about it. And people, um, you know, go to their corners. But I think there is a real desire for people to be have something that's hopeful sounding to them. And, you know, it isn't just the extremes and all these issues that, that may get the, you know, they may fill up the room sometimes, but that's not the way the majority of people feel. And so having the opportunity in whatever way we can to bring together people around big issues and build, you know, you know, it's sort of the same. So how do we, if we have a problem with mental health, if we have a problem with defense, if we need to prepare for the, the future workforce, you know, we all agreed about those things. We agree that mental health is an issue. We agree national security is under duress. We agree that the world is changing. We have to be prepared. So 
I, I think building an agenda around those, not allowing ourselves to actually move into a place of just division and just sort of trying to stay above that and yeah. build partners and build, you know, find some way to be collegial. I, I'm, I know it sounds simplistic and I don't mean to sound simplistic, but, you know, I've operated, operated in this political world for almost 40 years off and on, and you can't get weary in well-doing, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. you can't, people have to have some hope and agenda to move forward. As I talk to a lot of young people who are so discouraged sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes they don't want to have anything to do with these discussions, to which I say, I get why you feel that way. But if you don't step up, let me tell you all the decisions that are going to be made that will impact your life. Mm -hmm. So it's really not a choice to step away in whatever way. So you may not choose to run for office or serve in in government, but you do need to understand the issues and you do need to have some ability to deal at some level that's just beyond what you read in a, you know, what you see in social media every day. Yeah. Uh, at very least, you have to know how to ask good questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one more on, on Sagamore. You mentioned uh, next year, 2024, Sagamore Institute will celebrate its 20th anniversary. And as part of that, you'll be releasing Workforce 2040 Pathways to Prosperity. Give us, uh, you'll be looking at workforce trends uh, and the impact on the economy, those types of things. Can you give us uh, maybe a little preview of what this uh, Workforce 2040 will look like? we're very excited about this. And yesterday was a really sort of our official launch, although uh, we've been working on it for the better part of the year in terms of building awareness and working with organizations who are committed to this. This is sort of in the keeping in 1987, when Hudson Institute operated, they did Workforce 2000. And it was really, it was funded almost exclusively by the U.S. Department of Labor, very government heavy in terms of policies. And, and I mentioned this to some people that in, 19, in the late 1980s, the term workforce was really not used that much. The term was manpower. And so you began to see this shift in these issues and people starting to think, how do we think about the future and prepare for that? In the late 1990s, was still under the, the Hudson umbrella, they did Workforce 2020. Carol D'Amico, who was at Hudson, who is a, a senior advisor to us on this project now, was one of the two authors of Workforce 2020. And it tended to deal much more at the state level, uh, focused at that point, it focused a lot on Columbus, Indiana, although it had a reach far beyond that. And it seemed to me that when I came here that it was and I've been so informed in my work about how we're not going to be able to close income gaps or be prepared for the future if we're leaving all these people behind. And it isn't just going to be people who had low skills that are going to be left behind with the change of the economy. People who went to college and the job changes or goes away are going to have to have some personal agency over their life. So we started looking at Workforce 2040, and not surprising, the the first response that most people have is, how can you even think about what the world's going to look like in 2040, which is why we have called it Pathways to Prosperity. Hmm. This isn't a singular book that we're producing, which was the case before, although there will be a body of work similar to that. But this is an ongoing process that we will be visiting, revisiting when changes happen. We will have we have a group of people working with us. We're funded everything from state government. The governor's workforce cabinet has provided funding for us to philanthropy. We have funding from Lumina and Strata and Vested to private sector, One America and others. We're trying, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is we're trying to do at Sagamore and convene in a way that no one of those places can do on their own. Government does what government does. 
private sector does, what it does, and more than ever is blurring the lines between learning and working and philanthropy funds. But, but what we're trying to do is, in a collective way, look at what is the economy that Indiana wants to have, and then how do we build the talent to get there? And so we have three areas, the future of work, how will people work, where will they work, what jobs will go away, what jobs will be created, the future of the workforce, a very deep demographic dive. And we're working with Carol Rogers and IBRC and others on that to look at who will live here, who do we need? And then we'll look at the future of learning. How will people learn and be reskilled for those jobs? So I'm very excited about it. I think that it has the potential to really be a roadmap for Indiana. You know, some of the stuff, there's a lot of clamor around there, around the future of everything. But what we're trying to do is provide greater clarity in a roadmap. And so important and timely, uh, certainly for Indiana, uh, uh, to be sure. Uh, th- this seems to be certainly your sweet spot, that tie between education you know, and workforce, education and economic development. It was during your tenure as a as a um, as a legislator and as you led the Commission for Higher Education as well. And as I looked at your background, so you grew up on the east side, right? Warren Township. Dad was a Ford dealer. Is that right? Chrysler. Chrysler. Okay. What, what what was growing up like for you? Well, you know, it's so interesting that you asked that because at our program yesterday, we um, I, I thought it was a great kickoff. There was a lot of conversation about the east side of Indianapolis. Uh, mm. Steve Goldsmith did a kickoff and he's written a book with his wife about it's called Growing Fairly. But we talked a lot about the change that happened on the east side. And I think it's been one of the key motivators to my my career and what I've thought about because you know, there was not great wealth in Warren Township and on the east side, but there was not extreme poverty either. It was very much a middle class place to live and people worked hard. And, and I watched it happen, you know, on the, all those places on Shadeland Avenue, which were major employers. And um, as the auto industry went south, as we saw our per capita income go from above the national average to start shrinking and going below, never having captured, never coming back again. I saw that a lot of those families lose the dignity that came with working hard, but it wasn't enough anymore. And I think that informs me to think about where we are now, because I think that we are in the throes of time change that is every bit as great as the Industrial Revolution. So people are going to get going to have to be skilled and reskilled. Jobs are going to go away. New jobs are going to be created. I mean, yeah. there's no doubt about it. I'm not a Debbie Downer on this, but I do think there's a lot of anxiety, uh, even while there's a lot of opportunity. And so I think that, you know, if if we can look at what happened in places like the east side of Indianapolis, rural Indiana, mm. where people lost their sense of sort of their sense of dignity that came with working hard, and we can find a way to have to really embed some aspiration and inspiration into the future. I think we can do that. It requires really strong leadership and it requires a collective around this. It can't just be government. It can't just be business, although I think it more than ever, it will be business. Mm-hmm. It will be employers who will skill and reskill and who, you know, have an obligation to do so. I have to tip my hat to one of the things we did yesterday is we gave the first Jerry Simler Corporate Citizenship Award mm. yesterday, and we honored Cook Group with that, and who I think been yep. the greatest example of corporate leadership that you could imagine. Everything from preparing people who don't have a high school diploma to what they've done on the east side with goodwill to you know making sure that people who come to work for them can work and go to school at the same time. 
I mean, that's the example I think you're going to see more and more of with the employer community as we continue to blur these lines between, you know, learning and working and reskilling. Yeah. And and boy, very deserving, as you mentioned, Cook Group, because they have, they continue to, you know, really walk the walk, talk the talk, you know, whatever the expression is, they they do it and they do it, do it very well. But that East side, I mean, I, I, I started my uh, career in Indianapolis right about the time Western Electric and Chrysler and RCA and uh, all those big companies were right together there on Shadeland and began to go away. And yeah. I think it's a microcosm. And certainly, and we'll, we'll, we got to go run to a break here, but want to talk about that changing economy because to me, the auto industry getting ready or is in the process of going through that again with electric, the electrification Absolutely. of the auto industry. And Indiana's right in the forefront of that. So we'll talk about that and a lot more when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. At PNC Bank, we're committed to making a difference in the lives of our customers and communities by helping them move forward financially. As a Main Street Bank, we try to do right by our customers with every encounter. Our local teams offer personalized financial advice to help guide you in making the best decision. We're proud to be part of your community. PNC Bank. See how we can make a difference for you at PNC.com. Copyright 2022, the PNC Financial Services Group Bank. All rights reserved. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, Teresa Lubbers, the longtime state legislator. She uh, headed up the Commission for Higher Education uh, for 13 years and is now serving as president of the Sagamore Institute, an Indianapolis-based think tank. And Teresa, we were talking before the break about transition in the economy and the importance of you know having a workforce that is ready, uh, obviously. I think we're about maybe or, or maybe are at a t another tipping point for the economy here in Indiana as you look at the electrification of the auto industry and the big changes, uh, the, the the enormous amounts of money automakers are investing into the EV marketplace. We just uh, recently saw a partnership, uh, a, a joint venture uh, between uh, Samsung SDI and Stellantis announcing plans for a second major EV plant in Kokomo, they're putting in GM and Stellantis or GM and Samsung putting in another big plant up in the South Bend area. So it's happening all over. But these are are, are different jobs. Some of the tr more traditional jobs are probably going to go away. There's got to be training involved to to reskill people. Do you see this as kind of that, you know, another kind of uh, tipping point, if you will, for the Indiana economy when it comes especially to manufacturing? I think it is. And I think it's very positive for the most part. I am grateful for Senator Todd Young and others who have really focused on this issue. Uh, you know, some would call it the reindustrialization of America. You know, as you look at the impact of other, you know, what globalization has done or doesn't do. And, I, and I, I'm not smart enough to figure out what that looks like going forward. But I do believe that you have a it's in our DNA in Indiana to make things. And it, it it may be changing how we make things, but I think that is that's not going to go away. That's going to be that's who we are. Um, I do think that with that comes the opportunity for really developing an entrepreneurial spirit in people. You know, we talk a lot about the importance of entrepreneurs, and I think you know with technology, and I think it is incredibly important. But it's not just people who start businesses. 
It's people who have personal agency over their lives so that when business is changed, they can step up and get the skills that they need to do that. And that's why I think this partnership with employers and educators is going to be so important going forward. We can't afford to leave people behind in this. And, you know, I, I know sometimes I would use the terminology lifelong learning and people would like look at me like, please don't tell me I'm going to have to keep learning for the rest of my life. So I tried to find new ways to talk yeah. about that. But the reality is the changes are happening at such lightning speed and in such dramatic ways that we are going to have to decide that our culture is going to become a little bit more willing to be entrepreneurial, to, to be you know, a bit more of a risk taker um, to actually, you know, move in because we're deciding, you know, what kind of place Indiana is going to be. I think that requires, you know, real visionary leadership and it needs to be conveyed in a hopeful way. It can't be, oh, my gosh, your jobs are going away. You know, the world is coming to an end. It has to be, you know, yes, there are going to be big changes, but, you know, we're going to be prepared to to be successful with those changes. And that's why it takes real leadership. And I think it takes all of us working together. Yeah. What's what's your message or what is the message that can be delivered in, in particular to rural areas of the state? Because I think there are some areas where there is that hopelessness that, that you yeah. know, they've lost employment and the big employer who was there for many, many years gone away. And they say, well, you know, we're, we're, there's nothing we can do. And there's a hopelessness there. What, what's the messaging that needs to kind of reach that part of the state? I think one of the things that's really helped in this regard is thinking regionally, as opposed to just thinking about the old county lines. I know that a lot of funding is still dependent on county lines, but I think it, you know, I think part of the message is that people who grew up in these areas, the message was go get an education and get, and don't come back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not a very convincing message to give to people in communities. You know, what you have to be able to say is you have assets. And in each of our regions, whether it's by the ready grants or whatever we're talking about, each of our regions has assets that we can build on. You may choose to live in one county and work in another county and be able to stay there. So I think this focus on regional assets and building talent and opportunities around that in a region can can make a big difference. Um, you know, technology gives us opportunity to do things differently in terms of rural. I know in the past, it won't in and of itself, being able to live in a rural area won't be enough unless you improve the quality of life as well, which I think we're committed to doing. People have to want to live in those areas and they do, and mm -hmm. they do, but you can't, they can't be left behind areas. And, yeah. you know, the perfect example that we always used to use was broadband. You know, if you, you know, where, who was getting left behind there? And right. of course we've had acceleration of that, but I, I think regionally, thinking regionally, building on assets that are there and, uh, you know, getting people the opportunity to live where they want to and have a good job at the same time. I think that's possible, but it's, yeah. it's not the message that gets out there sometimes. Yeah. Well, you mentioned education. And for many, many years, education was a four-year degree, traditional four-year institution. And, and obviously, there's a, a movement to change that, you know, two-year associate degrees and credentials and, and certifications. Uh, talk about that, and and if you see Indiana making progress culturally from that whole idea that education is about more than a four-year institution, and we've got some great ones here, public and private, but I know there was the goal of, what was it, 60%, uh, the goal of 60% of Hoosiers having, you know, a solid post-high school certificate or... or, right. or uh, some sort of a quality credential beyond high credential, school. Credential, yeah. You know, I, I, I always look at this, you know... Often in public policy or messages, what we do is we say, 
We do something one way and then we repudiate that and say, let's just forget it that and let's do something different. I'm much more likely to look at this in a holistic way and look at education and training as based on personal aspirations and preparations and the needs of the economy. What are the multiple pathways to getting a good job and having upward mobility? And that can come in a lot of different ways. Not not every degree matters the same. Not every credential matters the same. Not not even the the that the, your income can necessarily be the only measure, or else we wouldn't have people as drug counselors or teachers or all the things that don't pay as much. That's a whole nother story about right. how much we should pay people for the jobs that they're doing. And I think it's going to be interesting to watch when you have automation actually taking over in in many of these kinds of jobs. How we revalue things. I mean, the woman who the people who take care of my mother who lives in a memory unit may be valued at a much higher level than they are right now in terms of what we're willing to pay those people uh, mm-hmm. because a, ro- a robot can't do that. So I think there's going to be you know, some adjustment. But I guess this is my way of saying that I think there are multiple pathways, but they should ensure a good job and the potential for upward mobility. And um, so the state's workforce ready grant is a great way to get people to get a quality credential. Um, associate degrees aligned with either the needs of the economy or continuing their education uh, is a great way to do it. So I, I think we need all of it. And the, the measure should be economic advancement and quality. Awareness, too. I mean, I, I, I've always been interested in this whole talk about, you know, credentials and in, in, in things other than a four-year degree. I remember David Johnson, uh, the former uh, CICP head who also headed up uh, BioCrossroads. He talked about, I can't remember the number, but he talked about the number of jobs in the life sciences sector that don't require or won't require a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. And these are good jobs that pay good wages and do enough Hoosiers know about that or know about jobs in advanced manufacturing or some of these other areas that don't necessarily require education, but not necessarily a four-year degree. And, and it can lead to a good career. Probably not enough do. I do think that the new focus with uh, Katie Jenner and the Department of Education on on uh, really the the new GPS, the new ways to get your high school diploma with an earlier focus on career awareness as well. I mean, part of the reason why people don't go into certain fields is they they don't really know what those jobs look like. So I think you know this alignment between working and learning. We certainly saw it in higher ed as well as when we were really focused on making sure that you know all degrees had some sort of embedded career relevance to them. And that people would have a you know basic understanding of what those jobs look like because they did more of those. I think that the passage of 1002 this last session, creating these career scholarship accounts, I think is going to be very innovative. It'll be important to make sure that we roll that out the right way. But um, I think as long as we have ways to really measure, and I would measure the value of a credential, whatever that might be, by the ability to get a good job and to have upward mobility in that job. I want to ask you, too, I'd be interested in your opinion on this, because I think when you look at the tie between education, higher education and business and economic development, I think the new what will be the new Indiana University and Purdue University in Indianapolis can have a pretty remarkable impact on that. What's your, what's your take on that? Because I think transformational is a, use that, a word that's used too often, I think, but I almost I really look at that and to, to see those two institutions doing what they are talking about doing as really being impactful. 
Well, they're really playing to their strengths. And I think that's important. You know, you don't need every institution to do the same thing. You don't, you know, so you don't need a, a law school at every place or an engineering school at every place. But I think you do need actually more engineering. You're going to see Marion opened up their engineering school because back to our earlier comment about, you know, making things is, you know, more important than ever. And engineering is kind of right at the center of that. But I really, you need to have two, you know, research uh, institutions based have have a you know really firm footprint in Indianapolis. It, it really, I think, will be very important for economic development and the viability of the city. And I think this corridor between Purdue and Bloomington, with Indianapolis in the middle, and how that builds out in terms of being a driver for economic development is critically important. And you know, when because it all comes back to talent, and you know, whether you're talking right. to you know, the Chamber of Commerce and you're talking about their Prosperity 35 program or anything else, you know, employers will talk about the, the, they're very grateful for tax policies and they're very grateful for funding for certain things that, you know, give them an ability to bring an employer here. But they are going to get stuck with the talent component if we don't address this correctly, which is why I think Workforce 2040 is foundational to a lot of that work. What we're hoping with Workforce 2040 is as an offer to the state to provide this great analysis data, updated information, bringing people to the table so that, you know, the, the talent issue is being addressed at a level that it has not been addressed before, both for the sake of the individual, for the sake of the employer and for our state's economy. We will very much look forward to the release of Workforce 2040. Teresa Lubbers, you've been so impactful uh, over your your long career in in education, in in uh, in economic development, workforce development, and you continue to do so at the Sagamore Institute. So thanks for taking time, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Hope to see you soon as well. Thank you for letting me chat with you for a while. All right, and thank you for joining us on this episode of the Business and Beyond podcast. It's a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, uh, education, entertainment, and beyond. It's brought to you by PNC each and every week. And you can also uh, find every episode and Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.